This is Saren Kohli. You're listening to We Are All Africans, a safe space for Africans with a wide range of backgrounds to discuss their being in a globalized world. So please take a seat and listen. What is your name and what does it mean? So my name is Oluwa Sheyi, Baba Femi Shonaya. In Yoruba, Oluwa is the term that's really for the creator and the owner of all existence. Uh, when Christians came to Africa, they chose that to be God. And so a lot of people think of that as like the Christian God, but it fundamentally is more of, you know, the, the benevolent all-being. And so Oluwa Shei, the creator, God, the owner, has done this or has made this. That's the name. And I, I actually think it's really fascinating that for many of us as Africans, our names are sentences in languages that we understand and can interrogate, as opposed to cases where you have to look at books of baby names to understand, you know, what does this name or that name mean? Because the language itself has changed, has drifted or modified or seen derivatives. But for us, it's very much a present thing for the majority of our names. And my middle name, Baba Femi, Baba Ife Emi, my, I mean, the father loves me. Whether it's your literal father or your you know, spiritual, you know, all father, sky father, but yes, the father loves me. So those are the meanings of my first and middle name. My last name, it's a little more complicated. What we think is that there was a deity in our community, Osho, although some people say the word Osho means wizard, but, and then Aya is chess, but also bravery. So it's saying like Osho is brave. That's the best I can understand it. I didn't grow up in the area that the name is from. So, and I never really investigated that much, but that's, that's as much as I can tell you. Your first and middle name are Yoruba. Is the last name also Yoruba? It is also Yoruba, but at that point it breaks into dialects. So I believe that the name is specifically Ijebu. And what happens is, you know, Yoruba is viewed as if it's one monolithic whole. But in reality, it's a bunch of small nations that have their own very specific variations. Um, so we are Ijebu, and I think that's part of why I find it more impenetrable. I don't speak Ijebu. Like if I heard a fluent Ijebu speaker talking to me, I would lose 50% of what they're saying just because of stress, intonation, dialects, lexicon, all these things. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Ileife, which is actually really relevant in Yoruba um, mythology or cosmology. It's said to be the cradle of the human race, literally. The Yorubas believe that all human beings emanated from Ileife. There's a university there. My parents are, uh, well, were. <laughs> My dad just retired. Um, professors on the university, and so that's where I grew up. My adolescence and, and most of my childhood was in Nigeria. 
um, I was born in the United States. And then I was taken home as a baby, as an infant. I spent my first four years in Nigeria. And then we came back to the U.S. Again, my parents are academics, so my mom came to do her own Ph.D., And so I was in the U.S. between the ages of four and eight. Then we went back to Nigeria. And I basically lived in Nigeria. We spent some time in Europe, but we lived in Nigeria for the next um, 12 years. I came back to the U.S. shortly before I turned 20. It's very interesting because you said that you were born in the U.S. and your parents brought you home when you were an infant. So what is home for you? As I've gotten older and as I've unpacked, you know, different dimensions of identity, it's become very clear to me that home is, you know, Nigeria. This year, I noticed that I stopped saying things like, I don't say as often, rather, things like, oh, my family is from Nigeria. I live in the U.S., right? I don't say as much my family is from Nigeria. I now just say I'm Nigerian. I'm a U.S. citizen. I was born here. I went to elementary school here. I went to college. But I think of myself now more as Nigerian than I think I ever have. So what happened? What was the shift? I'm not sure. Um, I think some of it has to do with growing older and just being more secure in dimensions of your identity. I think I've done some interrogation of my cultural perspective and seen that as much as I am Americanized, Those formative years, being in Nigeria between particularly 8 and 19 plus, really established certain core reflexes and perspectives that are Nigerian culturally. My cultural reflex and my default perspective, you know, is highly informed by Nigerian context, but then, you know, filtered through many other experiences. You told me that your parents were academics. How was your upbringing? How was your life as a child? A lot of times, for example, you see conversations in Black community, in um, African community, the diaspora, about upbringing and parenthood and, you know, their experiences that seem traumatic. It seemed like a lot of aggression. There are a lot of people saying, oh, we turned out fine despite all the beatings. I don't participate because my experience was so different. My upbringing was pretty much idyllic, right? I grew up on this university campus where, you know, it was lush, open, fresh air, quiet. You could hear birds chirping, flowers everywhere. We had relatively stable electricity, even at the peak of, like, Nigeria's infrastructural uh, challenges with power and things like that. I had access to computers. You know, my parents are real intellectuals and my dad would sit down with us and we'd have long conversations into the night as he probed our opinions on things. We weren't wealthy because, you know, the economic, the, the economic challenging and, and they weren't paying great, but my parents um, just really invested in my sister and I a tremendous amount that I feel like my, my upbringing was almost perfect. That I had a fantastic upbringing and I, I try to I try to give that to my own child as well. I'm a parent now. And uh, <laughs> that was another thing I saw the other day that was really amusing to me. They said people who are raised on love should not be with people who are raised on fear. And that bifurcation was valuable to me as a parent now, but it, it also helped me reflect on what I had enjoyed as a child. I was clearly raised on love. 
and not just in the immediate of my own parents. Like I have a large family and a large amount of us were raised on love and, and we're still super tight and close today. And we don't have fears and anxieties when we engage with each other, when I engage with my uncles and aunts, like we're, we're a tight-knit family. And so just being surrounded by all that love, I think, really gave me a, a wonderful, wonderful childhood. How was the transition when you moved back to the U.S.? I came to the U.S. when I was 19 and a half. It wasn't entirely like a, you know, moving to somewhere completely foreign. In fact, I went back to Ithaca, my hometown, town of my birth, place that I was, you know, went to elementary school. I had some family friends and people that I already knew there. So it was a much softer landing for me. But I still went through culture shock. And it took me years to realize that in retrospect that there was still a cultural dimension of shock of understanding the realities of the environment I was now in. And I think particularly there was a whole other dimension of understanding my place racially as a Black person in the United States. I think I had the very common immigrant delusions of separation from American Blackness, and I had to interrogate and work through those things. While I technically was not an immigrant, I very much had an immigrant experience. As you said, you were not an immigrant in the United States. So what makes you think that you had the immigrant experience? What is the immigrant experience? It's a fundamental foreignness and having to learn what things mean, um, what your actions and expressions mean, having to change parts of yourself to assimilate into the environment. The way I talk now is not exactly the way I used to talk when I was younger. You know, my, my intonation, my accent has drifted a little more towards the American. Like I can still draw out the Nigerian accent whenever I want to because uh, we code switch, right? But my neutral code has become more American. My perspective, the ways I, I see and deconstruct things in society or even in media have been shaped by having a new understanding of, of the world I'm living in, of the society and the environment I'm living in, the economics, the politics, the history of the place that I'm living in. And having to do all that work as an adult, as opposed to being socialized into it as a child, that is the core of, to me, the immigrant experience. You then get, you know, more severe cases where, okay, you have to think about um, legal, I don't know, pers uh, possibilities, uh, um, uh, rights to work. That's something I never had to consider, right? Um, I never had to pay international student fees, for example, which are much higher in universities. How to U.S. citizen, you know? I was in my own state of residence. Just a lot of things like that. There are aspects of the immigrant experience I do not know. But the, the cultural part of it, the assimilation, and I'll say my, my experience was easier. My ramp was more shallow, but I still went through a lot of that because I had to do that work consciously and deliberately as an adult. While in college in the U.S., what type of people did you meet? 
How did you build your own community? I had friends from everywhere, so I've always been a super friendly kind of person, you know. Uh, people like me, and I like people. Um, I obviously had tremendous affinity for all the Africans when I was uh, at a, I went to, for a year and a half to a school in North Carolina. Uh, I was part of the, student, uh, the African Student Union down there, and then I finished up at a school in Long Island back here in New York, and I was part of the African Student Union there. So, you know, obviously I want to know the African kids, comfortable, let's know each other, let's be a community and support each other in our specific challenges, let's have a comfortable place where we can speak about our own experiences and our own music and our own language. Back then, this is like 15 years ago now, 15 to 20 years ago, the African music, African taste, African movies were not as broadly popular as they are in this moment, right? So where do you go where you can share that with people who have the same familiarity uh, and reflex welcome for that. That was part of it. But on the other side of things, I was also very Americanized and I had a lot of different uh, activities that I was into that um, broadened my pool of friends. I was also a computer person, right? And so I met all the other tech key kids and the nerds, right? But I was also like way into basketball. So I met a bunch of the jocks and everything. And I was just like, I was cool with everybody in, in some really interesting way. And so I had this broad network of friends. Um, I still know people from college way back who hit me up every now and then. I've been to people's weddings who I met online through, you know, my nerd communities. When did you realize that you were African? I do think of myself as African, but I don't think there was a conscious moment of realization that I was African. I've always seen myself fundamentally as Yoruba, Nigerian, African, right? All of those things, they're intersecting. They're not necessarily um, stacked or containing each other. They intersect in different ways as, as how you self-define. I also see myself very much as American. And I also identify very strongly with the African-American, the American Black experience. And I, I will go to that about the specifics of that often in opposition to Africans, especially Africans here in the United States, because I think we are too cruel and don't understand a lot of what they're dealing with. But I'm also very proud to be African, you know, and I feel a, an affinity, um, a connectedness to other Africans. And I think it is uh, the integration of all of that that's made me very comfortable with telling people I'm African. There was also a moment of kind of a, a defiance thing that came along where you know, there are all these pressures uh, in the United States, professionally, socially, and there are uh, expectations that you will genuflect, confirm, just chill. Yeah, you know, I don't want trouble. And <laughs> my own arrogance, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen. What are you going to do to me? Um, but also uh, just my own fundamental nature. I like to let people know, listen, my friend, in case you didn't know I'm African, you can't try that over here, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's a, it's a whole thing, a whole journey of, of claiming Africanness or the label of African as a way to um, simultaneously set myself apart and also integrate myself, depending on, on who I'm talking about. You talked about the Black experience 
as African-American and the fact that you think that Africans living in the U.S. are a bit too cruel. What do you mean? I think most of us don't um, have the opportunity to learn about the American Black experience. We don't really know. We think we know. But what we believe we know is what's been shown to us through media that overwhelmingly is not created by the people we think we're learning about. So we don't know who they are, what they've had to overcome, the resilience, the creativity, the genius that they've had to demonstrate consistently. And then we come in here and maybe we get certain opportunities and we denigrate them for not having the same. That's a fundament I observe repeatedly in the interactions. And, you know, there's a whole larger philosophical argument that there um, are interested parties who benefit from the Pan-African friction, from Africans and African-Americans not seeing eye to eye, from Black people being set against each other and believing that there's a finite amount of opportunity they have to compete over, which is a fiction, right? It's not a zero-sum situation. (laughs) We could give opportunity to all and there's still to grow. We can grow the pie. The pie is not a fixed size that we have to slice up between all these people competing for it. So um, I met a young lady uh, shortly after I graduated college. We met on a flight. It was all super romantic, cute. So we started dating and um, we're talking. And one day I made some kind of inference about uh, African-American culture based on like hip hop and stuff like that. And she was, she looked at me and she was like, you just don't know exactly how ignorant you are. Like you think you know because you've been consuming media, but you really haven't done the work. You think our heroes are rappers? <laughs> like, read a book, you know? Learn about how long we've been in this struggle and the careful articulations we've made about who we are and where we're trying to get to. That was a moment for me to challenge myself. You know, I, obviously I could have been like, oh, whatever, she don't know what, blah. I could have blown her off, right? But, you know, partly because I liked her, but also because I like knowledge. That was a moment for me to say, wow, hmm, maybe I, I don't know. And so that started me on a journey. And it took years of reading, of studying, of learning, of deconstructing the assumptions that I have. And now I come with a very different perspective that the work is not finished. I still learn new things every day. But... I have so much more empathy, so much more respect, so much more regard, and I fundamentally now align myself with the struggle for Black liberation and and respect in the United Not respectability, respect. We need to be respected as we are. We do not need to conform someone else's demand of what we should be to be respected. Usually when we talk about the Black experience, it's about the lives and the experiences of African-Americans. So when we talk about African-Americans, what do you think is African about that? Uh, It means pride and affinity in, you know, color, texture, music, percussion, people, joy, dance. What being African means to you? It means uh, regret and pain over just political instabilities, 
and uh, strong men with false de uh, democracies where they hold elections and win every time with 100% of the vote. <laughs> it means a complicated relationship with colonial legacy, because even though we achieved independence, we haven't really achieved liberation. And in some cases, those same colonial powers are still very much interfering with our day-to-day -day realities. Uh, it means distance, because even though we share a continent, we don't share as much trade and interaction as we could and should. It's harder to fly from one African country to another than it is to fly to Europe. Um, it means responsibility to the world, especially if you live in the West, in Europe, in the Americas, in these plural societies to explode their preconceptions of who you are, which are always narrow and caricatured and tend towards the negative. But not in a way that is seeking their approval. It is about making room for who you actually are. It's putting your elbows out and claiming your own space. So those are some of the things that it means to me to be African. So much of our daily lives is about work. And if your work doesn't uh, so much engage with African identity, political dialectics, whatever, then it may not feel super pertinent day to day. I am a parent. And so part of that is also communicating values teaching my son pride in the culture, in language, in uh, the geography, in the affinities. Uh, it means trying to maintain connections to community, both here and uh, internationally and especially at home. I think it has shaped my social media use a lot in the last couple of years <clears throat> because I have turned more towards Africans in my engagement, in my conversations, and even who I'm choosing to follow and who I've chosen to unfollow. And it's challenging at times because there's also economic disparities. There's a huge gap in views, ideas of equality and liberation that are still being very much worked through. We say sometimes every Nigerian is a petty tyrant in waiting because as much as we resent the government's uh, intrusions in our lives and, and uh, undermining of our uh, opportunities and possibilities, it seems like we love to tell other people what they can't do too. So, And that's a whole conversation that we need to continue having about people's rights to just be who they are. And I think for me, it's shaping my future work in that I want to have a much more Africa-focused posture I want to be participatory and interventionist in developing our public life, our visual culture, our cultural lens. But at the same time, there's a guilt about it because I'm a baby boy and I like soft life. I try to go home. I'm trying to make it every year now. I try to take the boy. Of course, 2020 pandemic and everything has been a huge interruption on all that. But hopefully in the summer of next year, you know, post-vaccine, we'll be able to uh, spend time, not just in Nigeria, hopefully in a few other places as well. But 
You talked about your son and about transmission. What is your son's name? And is he Yoruba as well? So in one of life's wonderful ironies, yes, my son is also has two Yoruba parents. Uh, I did not plan this. It was not practice something. Because, you know, look at God. Look at how God works. You know, His name is Olutayo Baba Femi. So he has the same middle name as me. Uh, Olutayo, or Oluwatayo, but we just went with Olutayo because I went through that whole thing with Americans and like the conventional form of my name is Olusheyi, but my legal version is Oluwashei. And then you get a bank saying, these do not seem to be the same person. <laughs> so one day I was on a bus and I just got one of those messages and I had to call bank and I like everything. And I called my mother and I was like, mama, I just went through this whole thing. And she was like, what? I was like, you know, because Oluwashi is the legal name. And my mother, my mother said, hmm, but Oluwashi is a mouthful. I was like, hey, God, what is strange? <laughs> Are you not the one who gave me this name? So anyway, I did not want to saddle my son with the same challenges. So we just, everything, all the time. On the legal name, when he says it, everything, there's a short form, which is just Tayo, but that's his name, right? Uh, and Olu Tayo, again, the creator, To, sufficiency, and Ayo is joy. So the creator is sufficient joy or has made sufficient joy. Wow, that's a beautiful name. Yes, although I really picked it because it's more pronounceable by white folk. That's the real, real reason. <laughs> all right, I wasn't going to give him big, uh, big, big gas. Shout out to all my big gas, but it was not going to happen. I'm not going to give him a name where they're like, um, I don't want to butcher this, but no. But also you notice he doesn't have any English names, just like I don't. That's a that's actually a philosophical point I got them from my dad. My dad does have uh, a non-Yoruba first name. Um, his first name is Emmanuel. But he had a somewhat traumatic experience when he was being baptized or something. And the priest, he gave them his middle name, Yoruba name, and I yelled at him, what do you think I'm here for? Because the colonialism through language was so intense that the man could not fathom the idea of a Yoruba name being Christian and therefore being something you could be baptized with. So because of that, my parents were deliberate about not giving my sister and I any, you know, colonizer names. And uh, I carry that forth with my, my own child. So he has no uh, European, you know, non-African names. All his names are off the soil. So that's the starting point for transmission because then you can have conversations about what is his name, what does his name mean, what language is it. And so he wants to learn the language and I speak to him and it's a ongoing process because it's challenging without the immersion. Like we don't have TV, we don't watch a ton of uh, Yoruba language media here. So he's struggling with the immersion. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we want to go spend more time at home summers to help his immersion, help him with language acquisition and also cultural dimensions. But there are also other things that are challenging. Like he doesn't like the food. Boy does not like Pepe. And I'm just like, you know, now I think he might be a highly sensitive person, so I think he will grow out of it. But right now, like Thanksgiving Day in the United States was like two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, right? For Thanksgiving, I made chicken, I made jollof rice, plantains, and lamb, and I made, what else, beef. Boy didn't like any of it. He just wanted pizza. But he said to me, Daddy, I'm sorry I didn't like your rice. Here you go. See my life outside. But, you know, we talk about it. We're going to keep working through these things. 
listen, this one doesn't have a lot of pepper. Do you want to try it? Just like, no, I don't. Okay. We'll try it again next time. You know, another birthday is coming. You know, so it's a process. It's a process and it's a challenge. And this is actually half of the, the real challenge when you, um, when you emigrate, especially if you don't have community that's representative of you strongly around you. Like I'm not surrounded by a whole bunch of Nigerians who are speaking Nigerian languages and having Nigerian parties and things like that. So he's not growing up immersed in facets of the culture. And that's something I have to deliberately do things to change for him, inject and transmit the culture. What we can transmit our values in the ways we interpret the values of integrity, of honesty, of community, um, of openness. And so he's a pretty sweet kid. So. I wanted to talk about gender dynamics within your Yoruba culture. How do you see yourself as an African man, a Nigerian man, an American man? How do you navigate all those identities? So the funny thing is I clearly see myself outside of our own, shall we call it, dominant cultural lens when it comes to gender. The sexual dynamics, the gender dynamics, I don't think are healthy. Um, I think that there's a really patriarchal and very misogynistic norm, both just nationally, Nigerians, but then also in very specific ways in Yoruba. What is fascinating about that, what I find myself interrogating and pulling at is how much of that is innate or uh, original to the culture. Because there's so much of what we think is our culture that is actually the consequence of our interactions with other cultures, particularly from positions of weakness or forced assimilation. I didn't want to necessarily say colonialism because, you know, blaming everything on colonialism is so boring and lazy. And like, it's been so many years since then. What did we do since then? Right. So we have to own what we are and who we are today, but we have to stop defending it as if it's in nature, you know, it's our culture, isn't it? You know, and, and what decisions do we want to make? You know, like, okay, it's been our culture. Has it worked for us? Because, though, I mean, it don't look like we work in. If you ask me, I think maybe we should try some new things, you know, innovate a little bit. So I definitely sit outside of the cultural norm. I'm very much a feminist. I'm very much pro-gender equality. And I push at, my mom ran for president a couple of years ago. And I'm extremely proud of her for having the courage um, and the willingness to, to put herself out there and to articulate a whole series of political arguments about equality, about value, about, you know, even things like uh, we have this terrible system called state of origin in, in Nigeria, Nigerian politics. And she was saying, look, part of why she chose to run for president first is because state of origin would essentially render her unable to run in any other level because she doesn't live in the state that she's quote-unquote form. In Nigeria, your state of origin is your father's state of origin. And their father's state of origin through time immemorial back to colonialism, I guess. I don't know. So I'm from Ogun State. I'm from Ikeneremo, Ijeburemo local government. And I've been in that 
place for a total of maybe six days in my life. So now if I want to run for, you know, House of Assembly, local government chairman, I'm supposed to go to Remo. Nobody knows me there. My mom actually grew up in Ibarra, where she is from, but you know she ain't been there in like 45 years. Like when she goes there, people say, we don't know you. So she can't, like, I'm saying politically, if you want to try and run there, they'll say, we don't know you. But if she says she wants to run in Ife, where she lived, I was part of the company, you're not an indigenous. So where do you start? Right. So that was another dimension of her political intervention. And the fact that she did that as a woman, as a person challenging norms about expectations around leadership, being male and speaking up about these other issues. I'm very, very proud of her. So, yeah, I, I, I very much interrogate our gender dynamics. I very much push against a lot of our default expectations. Um, I think I think we're lazy in the ways we interrogate what should be, in the ways we challenge ourselves about who we are and what we believe and what we think is right and when and how we should change. There are very many negative stereotypes that then attach specifically to Yoruba men. Um, <laughs> why are you laughing? Why? why? <laughs> I don't see anything. You're laughing. That means you have been hearing these scurrilous lies about us. And <laughs> reject this, okay? We are angels. We are sweethearts. So, you know, I'm aware of those as well. And I try to not live the worst of those things. I try to be fair uh, in my relationships, in my own romantic and sexual relationships. I try to be aware of my own advantages and privileges, benefits of the doubt. Yeah, I, I try to be self-reflecting in my gender politics. So what are the stereotypes that you're talking about? Okay, these stereotypes are that Yoruba men have big hearts. Such big hearts that they can love many women at the same time. Mm-hmm. See the way you are? That, that you're, mm-hmm, is too confirmatory. You, this is... You have an agenda here. Hmm? <laughs> You're against us. The stereotype is that they, they, they cheat, they lie, but they, they're such great lovers. And so everybody ultimately deals with it. You know, like they ruin your life, but they they do so in a pleasant and fun way. They they spend money on you. They turn up. They, they're fun to be around. And there's a lot of positives in that. I just wish, you know, people would stop slandering us about fidelity, okay? <laughs> oh, yeah, Yoruba men don't cheat. <laughs> right? They have too many opportunities. It's not their fault. No, no, no. You see, they just, they don't want to hoard all the love that's inside of them. They want to make sure that they share it with the world. All right? It's not our fault that we were given just so much love to share. You know, we just want to make sure that we, into each life, a little sunshine will fall. That's all. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to help the world be a happier, healthier, more loving place. Where do you think the stereotypes come from? All stereotypes are really rooted in some truth. So It's interesting, though. I think that some of that is <clears throat> Nigerians tend to be very confident people. Right? They're, they're loud. They're fairly boisterous um, wherever we go in the world, uh, across all of our different ethnic groups. I don't know what it is about our internal dynamics that seems to produce that at scale. 
So I think that uh, that's some of it, that wherever we go, you know, we are, we are outgoing, we, we tend to be kind of life of the party. cultural product and the cultural export of Nigeria is to some extent at the vanguard of uh, a moment of um, African social cultural media appreciation, right? But what I think is interesting about that is um, so much of what is coming out of Africa, particularly with music, but even with film, it's tuned for party. It's up-tempo. Right, and so it's it's relatively easily digestible. There was a fascinating article I read a few years ago that talked about a change in the pace of African music, and specifically, you know, Nigerian, West African, Ghanaian, those other ones, kind of on the vanguard, and that they slowed down from about 128 beats per minute to around 96. And that suddenly made the music much more accessible to people around the world. You know, I'm not calling our friends rhythmically challenged. I'm just saying that slower music was easier for them to dance to without getting tired. So that shift, again, it's all it's been driven by kind of good time music. And if you actually, you know, listen to the music, it's not a lot of introspective interiority and, you know, pondering or musings upon the state of the world. No, it's, why uh, you baby, I love you, let's turn up party after party. But that's the vanguard. There's a lot coming behind it. And I think the other societies across Africa that have much more, you know, introspective uh, reflexes, shall we say, will reap the benefit of the widening of the aperture that the vanguard has, has created. On the women's side, I can see uh, a trend of appropriating, uh, for example, the headdresses, the, the type of makeup for weddings, for Nigerian weddings, um, all the setup. It's, it's very interesting to see because I always wonder, what do these people know about Nigeria? This is fascinating. So there are two trends that have really helped accelerate this, right? These these uh, makeup trends, these big parties and things were always in existence within Nigeria, but they were restricted to the, the most elite, the wealthiest, right? And we had internal publications that would chronicle them and stuff like that, and everybody go and buy a vision, party and all that stuff. But one, the penetration of internet access and then, move a lot of those things to um, blogs, right? And being able to then see them out much more readily globally because location is, is irrelevant when you're talking about the internet. Smartphones and video, allowing people to capture uh, experientially, not just static photographs, not just a textual description, but you know, very vivid experiences of what those people are going through and be able to put that into social media and let that propagate. And then there's been a heightening effect, and that's driven up all facets of the production values. Like the makeup has gotten much more sophisticated. And, you know, then the textures and the clothes and the lighting, the video work, 
And now everybody is a team of groomsmen and bridesmaids got to prepare some choreography, you know, the latest dance and everything. There's a lot of the same trends you're seeing globally, but amplified, you know, filtered through African cultural preferences and really, in this case, Nigerian kind of specifically. When you have media that is created by a people and disseminated by those people themselves, so they have control over their narrative you get a much more accurate sense of who they are. And that's what we didn't get historically with the American Blacks. And that's what they didn't get with us. Both ways, there's now the opportunity for genuine exchange. And that actually makes me excited about the future of Pan-African relationships. I think there have been multiple moments over the last several years that have given us a sense of connectedness and our commonalities. We still have many differences and there are many, many conversations still to be had to negotiate those. But there've been many times when people are just expressing things like, wow, y'all do that too? We do that too? What's up, guys? When do you feel most African? I think when I'm with other Africans. I think our our powers combine and (laughs) we become Captain Africa. (laughs) I think that when you're in spaces where you can use your own linguistic norms, when you can reference your own music, when you can reference your own politicians and cultural developments and things like that and not have to explain them, like you don't have to provide a primer and a backgrounder, there are moments when I just feel myself, where I don't need to refract or adjust or interpret or anticipate anyone else's reactions to myself. I just am. When do you feel less African? I'm now at a stage in my life and career where I forcefully interject my Africanness into even situations where in the past I would have held back, where I would have maybe played up more of my Americanness. Uh, so those are much more in my professional context. I work in technology. And particularly when I'm speaking uh, publicly or something like that, those would have been times when I would have been more uh, reserved about who I am. But now I guess I have a measure of comfort, of um, self-certainty and confidence. I don't care if you think less of me because I'm African. I don't enough for your pockets. I don't care. I'm African and I'm really good at this stuff. Like I'm really good at this stuff. Either contend or not, that's like that's just gonna be for you. I don't I don't care. What do you love about being African? Most things, you know. I I love uh, the texture of um, African existence. I love the sense of a family that abides in African experience of community. And I have all these concerns that perhaps, perhaps those will weaken with economic growth and the hyper-nuclearization of the family. But in this moment, that ready sense of community, the sense of having like a whole bunch of play cousins, you know, like even the way we use words like uncle and everybody's your auntie, everybody's your uncle, you know. That is a thing I very much love about being African, like feeling like you have just so much family available to you um, at any time and that you can rapidly, you know, become embedded in new, um, when you meet new sets of people because of that shared context, because of the ease with which 
we welcome people in. Thank you so much, Olusheyi, for trusting me with your story. And a big thank you to Utah, who has put me in touch with this brilliant mind. Sound design, sound editing, Emiliano Matos. And this is Saren Coley, you're listening to We Are All Africans. See you next Wednesday, en français.